Welcome to Genuine Life Recovery. We're here to help you and your loved ones overcome addictions and other addiction-related mental health challenges. In this show, we dive into the physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual aspects of addiction, mental health, recovery, family dynamics, codependency, and more. You can listen on your favorite app or at jodystevens.org. Genuine Life Recovery is made possible by great friends like Joshua's Heart in memory of Joshua Brent Moore, bringing hope, love, and awareness to those afflicted by addiction online at joshesheart.org and Jody Stevens Productions for commercial voiceover, narration, production, MC, and public speaking online at jodystevens.org. Hey friends, welcome back. Today I am joined by Richard Capriola. Richard has over two decades of experience treating teens and adults and individuals with addictions, substance use disorders, mental health challenges, things like that. Also wrote a book called The Addicted Child, a parent's guide to adolescent substance abuse. He's online at helptheaddictedchild.com. Richard, welcome and welcome back. I've chatted with you before. Yes, thank you, Jody. It's a pleasure to be back here and to uh, continue our conversation on adolescent substance abuse uh, after the pandemic. I know. Huh? I don't remember when the last time we talked was, but give the listeners just an overview, if you would, kind of where you're from, how you got into the recovery um, field, and a bit of your addiction counseling recovery background. Sure. Um, I started out working uh, in the field of education as an education Mm -hmm. administrator for about three decades. And then as I retired and transitioned out of that, I moved into uh, working in the mental health and addictions field. Started out by working at a mental health crisis center, a regional crisis Mm -hmm. center, and then accepted a job, uh, accepted a job at Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas, which is a large psychiatric hospital, uh, which serves both adolescents and adults. And I worked at Menninger for over a decade, treating both teenagers and adults diagnosed with uh, mental health and substance uh, use disorders. And so many times I would sit across from a family and I would go through their child's history of using a substance and give them a diagnosis mm. of a substance use disorder. And, and they would look across at me and they would say, I had no idea this was going on. Or if wow. they did suspect their child was using a substance, they would say, I sort of thought something was going on, but I didn't think it was this bad. And, and these are good parents. These are good parents doing the best job they can they missed the warning signs because nobody told them what to look for. Nobody told them what the warning signs are. So after I retired from Menninger Clinic, I wrote this book, The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. I kept it short. It's a little over 100 pages because I know parents are busy. But I wanted to give them the warning signs so that they knew what to look for. And I wanted to explain to them how the adolescent brain works and what these drugs do to an adolescent brain. I wanted to give them some information on the street drugs that are out there. They know about alcohol and marijuana, but they may not know about some of these other drugs. Uh, what the treatment options are, how to recognize a good treatment program and resources. So all of that I I packed in my book to hopefully be an an education and a resource for parents to help them feel a little less paranoid and more confident about this scary topic. 
Yeah, that is fantastic. Lots of great experience. And we're going to get into some of those things that you mentioned, prevention, substance abuse, addictions yeah. with teens, difference between addictions and just using substances, which a lot of times people don't know the difference, um, prevent, uh, prevention with teens, all sorts of things that uh, we're going to be chatting about. But I want to know... Richard, what's been happening with substance use since the pandemic? So in other words, what did we see prior to, during, and now after with teens and substance use? And maybe kind of comment on like, what does this mean as well? Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, prior to the pandemic, uh, we had continued to see teens being attracted to alcohol and marijuana as the two primary substances that that they that they've been using and that's been true for years and years and years yeah yeah the one alarming thing though that that we saw before the pandemic was that for about three years we had been seeing an alarming increase in teenagers vaping marijuana and vaping nicotine so for those who might not be familiar with vaping it's basically a process where they use a, a vaping instrument a pin uh, it contains a cartridge that, that has either marijuana or nicotine in it. It, it ha has a vaporizer in it that turns those substances into uh, a vapor, and then that's inhaled. Um, and for about three years prior to the pandemic, uh, the, the percentage of kids that were vaping either nicotine or marijuana was just rising dramatically. Um, the pandemic had the effect of reducing across the board adolescent substance use. So in every category, whether it was drugs or alcohol or vaping, we saw a substantial decline in the percentage of students that were using uh, drugs or drinking alcohol. And I think that's attributable to the fact that during that pandemic year, kids were pulled away from school, they were pulled away from their extracurricular activities and from their peers. Uh, many of them were doing online uh, learning and education. So they just didn't have access to the drugs. So we saw a significant decline. Now, a year after the pandemic, uh, we've looked at data in 2022. And what we've noticed is that there has been a slight rebound in kids using drugs, a, a, a slight increase pretty much across the board, but still not to the level that it was before the pandemic, except for alcohol. Alcohol mm -hmm. had the biggest increase in 2022. So it appears that kids using alcohol have basically, the pandemic did not have a long-term effect. Um, that had a significant increase uh, a year after the pandemic. So overall, a year after the pandemic, we're starting to see a return to using substances, but we still haven't got to the pre-pandemic levels. We'll know in a few years how that trend goes, if it's going to continue to move up or not. Um, it's still not back where it was before the pandemic, mm -hmm. which is good news, but it yeah. is trending back up. Mm. Wow. And, you know, I would think, too, that, you know, we have these 
already kind of problems with phones, technology, things like that that cause us to be a little more isolated. Then we go into a pandemic, we're doing online learning, which maybe added even a little bit of the fuel to the fire when it comes to just mental health challenges, do you think? Yes, absolutely. Well, we've known for a decade prior to the pandemic that there has been a crisis in adolescent mental health. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it, 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 we, we've known that for quite some time. The pandemic did sort of uh, increase that because of mm -hmm. the stress, because of isolation, because of anxiety and depression. Uh, but we've known for over a decade that we have a serious problem with adolescent mental health in this country. Why do you think that is? What do you think that's kind of stemming from or rooted in? And, and so the first part of the question, and then secondly, is it just adolescence or are we just in a full-blown mental health crisis with everybody? I, I don't think it's just adolescence. I think, uh, okay. I, I think there's a crisis for, uh, for adults and, and a lack of services for both adults and adolescents. Uh, <clears throat> so I think we have just a national mental health uh, situation that's been gradually getting worse. Um, some of that's attributable to uh, society changing in ways mm -hmm. that maybe aren't so healthy for mental health. Some of it has to do, um, you know, with social media, especially among teenagers and being linked to social media and, and the effect yeah. that social media is having, uh, particularly on teenage girls in a negative way. Um, so I think there's a lot of factors. It's, 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 it's a complicated picture. Uh, but the bottom line is uh, the mental health issue for adults and adolescents is, is some, a serious concern. And we need to be directing more services to help both adults and adolescents that are struggling with mental health issues, whether, <clears throat> whether it's depression or anxiety or whatever it is. What do you think are some things we can do to address that? Like maybe... As individuals, as parents, perhaps as society, as mental health professionals, you know, I think everybody can sort of grab a slice of the pie, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, how do we how do we address this on on these levels? We we talk about it like, oh my gosh, we're in a mental health crisis, but. I think we're all sort of stumped, like, what do we do, you know? Yeah. Uh, I think, first of all, we just as a nation have to put a priority on it. And when, it, yeah. when we put a priority on it, then we put the resources behind it that we need to provide the services. And it's expanding access to assessments. It's expanding access to good treatment. It's expanding access to good health insurance that covers mental health issues, perhaps better than what we're doing right now. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a focus on, on early assessments and early interventions. So it's a comprehensive approach that we need uh, in, in the delivery of, of mental health services nationally. Yeah, well, and there's still kind of a separation, I think. You know, we get we deal with substance use disorder. So at the Life Change Center, we're an opioid treatment center. So we do MAT, you know, like medication assisted treatment, basically mm -hmm. methadone, buprenorphine and things like that. We also offer counseling. But at the same time, we we don't have a whole lot of mental health professionals, but we do have a few. So we're able to do full assessments and then refer out. Yeah. And I'm wondering if that's where oftentimes the people are getting slipping through the cracks because they're coming in and they're maybe getting 
getting treated for the substance use, but not all the other sorts of mental health issues that might be driving the uh, substance use. That's an excellent point because I think that happens a lot. I think we mm -hmm. focus on the substance use and all of our attention and all of our assessments and all of our treatment is focused on, on, on the drug use. And we miss the fact that in many cases, there is an underlying psychiatric issue that that person, whether it's an adult or a teenager, is using the drug to medicate. And oftentimes these individuals uh, don't get comprehensively assessed. We do the assessment on the alcohol or drugs, but we don't do a psychological assessment or a neuropsychological assessment. And, and unfortunately, many times people who are struggling with an addiction um, are also struggling with a mental health issue that unfortunately gets undiagnosed and therefore untreated. Um, and for, as you know, if a person has a dual diagnosis, we need to treat both the addiction and the mental health issue. You can't treat just one and, the, or, and ignore the other. Right. And that's huge. And for those of you that are listening and, and maybe you're confused about that, it's just that most people that struggle with addictions, a lot of times they're treating a mental health issue. So it could be, I mean, what are some of the common ones? I know we see anxiety, depression, yeah. bipolar, uh, oftentimes schizophrenia with yeah. substance use disorder. Am I missing one? So there's some common ones that kind of coincide with addiction and when we need to look at both because so often at a young age we start medicating that to yeah. try to feel better we're trying to kind of fix something that's broken in our brain and i think that's a huge piece of helping people deal with the stigma and the shame around substance use and addiction because a lot of times we have a good intention, right? We're trying to fix something. We're fixing it, and and we're going about it with, with the wrong the wrong way, you know. Yeah. Well, when when I was treating adolescents who were smoking mm -hmm. marijuana, and <clears throat> they were smoking a lot of marijuana, I would ask them you know, sometimes, "Well, help me understand why you're smoking so much marijuana." And the number mm -hmm. one answer that came back was, "It helps me with my anxiety." It helps mm. me with my anxiety. Yeah. So yeah. in some cases, not all, but in some cases, there is this underlying psychological reason that a, that a teenager and an adult is using a drug like marijuana or alcohol or some other drug to medicate that underlying issue. Uh, among the adolescent population, I, I've seen a lot of uh, anxiety. I've seen depression. I've seen some trauma. I've seen yeah. emerging personality disorders, conduct disorders, things like that, that in, in some cases, kids are using a drug to sort of calm down, to, to, to medicate mm -hmm. that, that, that issue. So it's very important that if, um, if a parent is uh, struggling with a child who's using a substance, that they get not just a, a drug assessment, you certainly want to get that done. But also you want a psychological assessment too to see to either rule in or rule out if your child is 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 dealing with some underlying psychological mental health issue that you may not be aware of. Well, and the whole thing like with a conduct disorder, which can turn into really, you know, like antisocial type stuff, yeah. you know. A lot of those things, like personality disorders, if they're caught early enough, right, they can be treated yes. as opposed to, I think, right, uh, when you say when we get older, it's much harder to overcome those things. 
just with personality disorders. I, I don't know, but my understanding is it's pretty, it, it's a lot harder the older we get. It is. And, and I would say the same thing for, for substance abuse uh, as yeah. well. You know, the earlier we identify it and assess it and begin treatment, the more likely we are to have an earlier positive outcome. The longer we delay assessment and delay treatment, whether it's for the substance use, a personality disorder, or any mental health issue, the longer we delay assessing and treatment, the more likely this is to become a more serious issue down the road. Right. And typically, the psychological issue would manifest first. And you say, um, and I, what might what what might parents look for? You know, yeah, I think in a lot of cases that that I'm familiar with and have dealt with, it was the drug use that brought the child into treatment that mm-hmm. then allowed us to assess for other psychological issues as well, and those came to the surface. I think many mm. of the parents who brought kids into treatment were focusing on the substance use because it was a crisis. And, it, it, and, and they brought their child into, say, Menninger Clinic uh, for an assessment um, on the substance use. And we, did a, we do a comprehensive assessment. And it, that comprehensive assessment brought forth the issue that not only was a child struggling with a drug abuse issue, they were struggling with a mental health issue that was unknown by the parents. So sometimes in the process of getting a substance use uh, assessment, we uncover the personality issue or the psychological or the mental health issue. I think sometimes parents get confused with the behavior that they're seeing from their child and, and they they have a tendency to say, well, that's just normal adolescent acting out behavior. And and, it may, and, yeah. and that may be true in some <laughs> cases, but it might also be an indication uh, that there's something else going on underneath the surface for that child. And, and, and that brings us to the need to have uh, a comprehensive assessment. Anytime as a parent, you suspect something's just not going right. And what would be sort of the difference between, you know, your your typical adolescent behavior and something deeper than that? I think that is the challenge because, and like I just had a mom on who, I mean, she lost her 14-year-old son to fentanyl. It was, it was he took a pill and that was, that yeah. was it, you know, and they had just, um, the, the treatment center called him literally, called back right after they had found him deceased and they knew i know and this is happening all over the place with fentanyl i've had several moms on that have that have found their kids and they're so young i mean it's it's super heartbreaking but he had had an anxiety issue and luckily they were getting him assessed for that and everything but unfortunately this happened but um i remember her saying things like but the interesting thing was it was consistent with his personality or it was consistent with his age and things like that so it's kind of it's like a fine line like how do we know the difference between oh he's being typical 14 or there's something more severe going on well as a parent you're probably not going to be able to see that difference i mean you'll see the difference but you won't know what mm-hmm. to attribute it to uh, parents right. are not you know, equipped uh, to, to do psychological assessments or neuropsychological assessments or addiction yeah. assessments. <laughs> uh, but they do know their child. They know their child yeah. better than anyone. So when you start to see behaviors that as a parent seem a little bit odd, 
seem a little bit unusual. Um, yeah. And they continue to linger. Now, if they come and go fairly quickly, it's probably not too concerning. But if they continue to linger and you start to see more and more warning signs, then I think you have to turn to the professionals to get some assessments done and get get the advice that you need from people who, who have the ability to do comprehensive assessments, uh, give you a diagnosis if it's applicable and a treatment plan. As a general rule, what I say to parents is pay attention to the changes that you see in your child. Um, yeah. you know, so, for example, a child whose grades are declining, uh, a child who used to enjoy participating in extracurricular activities no longer enjoys participating in those. A child who used to introduce you to their friends, you knew who their friends were, you might have known who their family members were, now becomes very secretive of who their friends are, becomes secretive about where they have been and what they've been doing. And then, of course, if you find any drug paraphernalia or strange odors coming from their room. These are all warning signs. And and, yeah. and there are others that I have in my book. And, and the warning signs are just to alert you that these are things that you, you, you need to pay attention to. And if they continue, you want to get some professional advice as to what's going on. Yeah, no, that, those are good suggestions. I would also say trust your gut, yeah. too. You know, I think I think we are born with these guttural instincts. I've even heard, you know, cops say that, like, just trust your gut, you know. Um, even when, like, one of the moms I was talking to, she, she woke up and she stood at the bottom of the stairs to go upstairs. And this was another child who had died from fentanyl. And she said, I knew at the bottom of the stairs, I knew something was wrong, yeah. you know. So I think, I think we have, like, an instinct where we may not know what it is, but something's just not right and we always like to just go oh it's nothing oh it doesn't matter oh it's this or that right we like to just yeah. do that but we can't do that i don't think right well i think i think we do that because we're 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 afraid you know we're yeah. we're, we're afraid to to face the fact that the child might be using drugs we're afraid mm -hmm. to face the fact that the child might be suffering from a personality disorder or, or some type of mental health issue. Um, those are very hurtful things for parents to come face to face with. And mm -hmm. I think we, we, yeah. we prefer to just, you know, stay away from it and, and until, unfortunately, it becomes a crisis. And many of the par yeah. parents that I dealt with brought their kids into the hospital because it had become a crisis. They had seen mm -hmm. some of the signs earlier. Maybe they missed them. Uh, but, but unfortunately, it, it had gotten to the point where it had developed into, in some cases, a, a life-threatening crisis. Mm. Yeah, so that's the importance of early intervention, exactly. which I want to talk about. But I want to get back to the substances. We were talking about just, you know, the marijuana, the vaping, the the alcohol, which are the what are what are some of the other big things that kids are using these days? Well, the, the kids continue to 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 use alcohol, marijuana, vaping. Um, what we did notice uh, over the over the pandemic was um, a significant increase in prescriptions for ADHD. Uh, they, oh, the Adderall. They rose, yeah, what's up with that? Well, they rose significantly uh, last year. Mm -hmm. um, and I think uh, there's a couple of factors that we can attribute to that increase in prescribed use of ADHD medications. One is uh, the stress that 
kids were and families were under during the pandemic year. But it's also possible that when teenagers were sheltered at home during the pandemic, parents became more aware of their child's attention issues and then mm -hmm. sought out medical treatment for them. So just having kids around the house during the pandemic might have triggered parents being more aware that their child might possibly have an attention deficit issue. And they, and they sought out assessments and treatment, which then led to the child being prescribed some of these ADHD medications. So I think a combination between the pandemic and perhaps parents witnessing their child's attention struggles during the time they were at home may account for the fact that we saw a significant increase in those kids being prescribed these ADHD medications. Well, and a lot of these medications they're able to get now, they can just get them on Snapchat, they get them online, and they even have, you know, these dealers will just drive around and deliver these sorts of substances right to kids' doorsteps. It's right, but I was talking about prescribed use under medical mm -hmm. supervision. We saw a lot of an increase in prescriptions for these ADHD medications, which means they're being written by uh, a medical health uh, provider under a doctor's supervision. But you're absolutely right. You know, over over the years, we have seen the illicit use of things like mm -hmm. Adderall and Ritalin that kids are either buying off the street, uh, selling it themselves, or getting it from friends. Now, these other drugs, aside from marijuana and alcohol, the percentage of teenagers using them is really fairly low. It's it's generally less than five percent across the board. Uh, the the drugs that kids are using most uh, the higher percentages are in alcohol and marijuana and vaping. Uh, there is some use of the more hardcore drugs, but generally the percentages are very low. Okay. So what are we seeing then with the fentanyl? Is it, I know a lot, because I'm seeing and talking to so many moms that are losing their kids to this, yeah. that, that are in the experimental phase. So they take one pill at a party and that's the end of it. Now, that's not to say, right, that, that more kids are using, well, they call them the perk 30s or the blues or whatever. They're, they're getting, they're thinking it's one thing and it's another. So it sounds like it's not that more teens are using these substances. It's just that it's so much more riskier now. That's right. That's absolutely right. Fentanyl is not common among teenagers. However, overdose deaths of fentanyl, because they're increasing, mm -hmm. tells us that the drug is becoming more dangerous. So it is not a widely used drug, fortunately, among the teenage population. But it is impacting adults, and it is resulting in a lot of, uh, of, of drug overdoses and deaths among uh, the adult population, and some, some in the teenage population. So it's important that parents educate their children that, that the pills that they may be buying on social media or might be given to them by friends could potentially contain fentanyl, which could be deadly. Um, they don't know it when they buy these drugs. They don't know it when they take it from friends, and even their friends might not know it. But I think parents should educate their children that, <clears throat> that any drug that they buy over social media, any drug that's given to them by a friend, uh, could potentially include this, this fentanyl that could, that could be very seriously harmful for them.
Yeah. Well, and I and they're doing they're lacing most of these you know fake prescriptions with fentanyl then with Adderall my understanding they're lacing that with meth yeah. so if you're getting fake Adderall and and the whole thing is designed to get you addicted yes right because it's all money driven you know yeah and, and that's why it's important to, to that the parents have this discussion with their children and let them know the dangers of of either uh, obtaining a drug no matter what it is over social media or the internet or taking a drug from another child who offers it to them uh, and, and just simply explain to them that they, what they think that drug is may not mm. be what they're actually taking. And it could have something in it that could leave, that could kill them. What do you think, what, what's a good age to start talking to our kids about these sorts of things? And what are some good suggestions or strategies to have that conversation or begin that conversation? Cause I think, a lot of times as parents, we're like, well, they won't listen to me or I don't, A, or B, I don't really know what or how to bring it up so that they do hear me. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, it depends on the age of the child. You know, if, yeah. if, if the child is, you know, pre-teenager, you know, maybe in elementary school, what I would do is, <clears throat> is help that child understand the importance of their brain educate them a little bit about the brain. I have a section in my book that talks about the importance of protecting the brain and how the brain doesn't become fully developed until around age 24, 25. So parents can do a very effective job of, of, of teaching their children uh, about the importance of the brain, what the brain does, what different areas of the brain are, simple stuff. doesn't have to be very deep, but, but, mm -hmm. but you want your elementary child to grasp the idea that the brain is important, what the brain does, different areas of the brain, and the importance of protecting that brain. Then as they get a little bit older, say middle school or about to enter high school, now that they understand about the brain, you can have some discussions on how drugs work in the brain. So now they understand how the brain works and they understand how important mm -hmm. it is. Now you can introduce about how drugs work in the brain and again, educate them. I found that that approach uh, is more effective than telling them drugs are illegal Drugs are bad for them. Drugs are going to hurt them because they don't believe any of that stuff. So, mm -hmm. but they are interested in the neuroscience. They're curious. They want to learn. So as a parent, uh, I would focus on the neuroscience and helping my child understand the importance of protecting their brain and how damaging drugs can be to the brain. Uh, because I think if they grasp that, they're more likely to stay away from drugs. Um, uh, the conversation itself, when your children get a little older, I think you approach that. Say you're concerned about your child using a substance. You want to have mm -hmm. a discussion with your child about that, but you want to have the focus on you. So you want to come at this discussion with an inquiring point of view. Uh, for example, I'm concerned that uh, you might be using a substance like marijuana. Can you help me understand why I'm concerned? Uh, I'm afraid of some of these drugs that are out there. Uh, they scare me. Can you help me understand why I'm so scared about this? So the focus is on you and your feelings, and you're inviting the child to participate with you in a discussion about how you're feeling about their behavior, whatever it is that you're concerned about. 
I like that. Yeah, it's not it's not doing the the shame blame right. thing, you know. And of course, that's just good communication. Yes, you know, you always do this instead of it makes me feel like when you do right. this, right? And so it's yeah, and that's 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 great. So that's a great preventative strategy. Are there any other suggestions for prevention when it comes to substance use disorder, addiction, things like that? Mm -hmm. I think, I think the number one thing that parents can do is just know what the warning signs are, know what to look for, you know, get a copy of my book, read about the warning signs. Uh, because the sooner that you recognize the warning signs, the more likely you are to uh, seek out the appropriate assessments and assess uh, a diagnosis and, and treatment if it's needed. I think it's like anything else. If we know what the warning signs are for diabetes, for depression, for hypertension, uh, you know, for, for any disease, if we know what the warning signs are, we're much more likely to catch it at an early stage and intervene and more likely to have a, a positive outcome. So know the warning signs, know what to look for. So, and so we look for the warning signs. We see some of those warning signs. We decide we want to get our kids an assessment. Mm -hmm. Then what do we look for? Because there's a lot of treatment centers, yeah. right? And so I agree with you that the assessment is important. There's a lot of different types of assessments. Some are very thorough, some maybe not so much. Yeah. So as a parent, like what questions would we would we want to ask a, about where we're going to bring our child and what type of an assessment that we would like, things like that? I think, I think um, you would start with having a conversation with your school counselor, uh, your school mm -hmm. psychologist, or your school social worker. Many of them are capable of doing some of these assessments themselves. And if they're not, uh, they can refer you to professionals in, in the community that uh, can do these assessments for you. So I would begin by having a conversation with either the school counselor, the school social worker, or the school psychologist. Tell them what you're concerned about, tell them what you've been seeing, and ask them, how do I get some appropriate assessments done so that we can either rule in or rule out a diagnosis and have a treatment plan if needed. Um, if a treatment is needed, <clears throat> my book uh, goes through all the different options that are available, everything from outpatient to uh, intensive outpatient to residential. If you're looking at a residential program, I have a list of questions in my book that parents should ask any potential treatment center. Um, because many times parents, parents just don't know what to ask and how to figure out what is a good treatment center. And I have information in my book about how do you, how do you recognize an evidence-based treatment program? What does an evidence-based treatment program look like? And what are the questions you should ask any treatment provider or treatment program? So, because parents, you know, they, they find out their, their child needs treatment and, and okay, now they want to know, well, what are my treatment options? And I explain the differences in the treatment options. Um, and then if the child really needs a residential placement, which is typically the case if you have a child that has a severe substance use disorder and or a severe mental health issue, those children are more likely to be referred to a residential treatment program. Mm -hmm. What questions should you ask a treatment program? You know, what, as a parent, what, what should you be asking? Um, so 
it's important that I think parents know what's available, know what to ask, so that they feel better prepared to deal with this issue if they have to. And what are just a couple of those things, a couple of those things that we might want to ask as parents? Well, if you're looking at a, at a, at a, at a treatment provider, say an outpatient program or an mm-hmm. intensive outpatient program, you want to make sure that the, the person doing the treatment has experience with adolescents. You know, what, how many adolescents have you treated? What, what type of disorders have you treated? What is your treatment approach? You know, and basic you know, questions that uh, mm-hmm. will help you get a better understanding of what type of service is going to be provided. If you're looking at a residential program, which is uh, often the case when a child has a severe substance use disorder and a severe s- mental health issue, uh, and you're looking at treatment that could be months, um, then you want to know, well, what's the ratio of female to male patients? Uh, what, is, what are the credentials of, of, of your staff? Uh, how much time will my child have with individual therapists? How much time will they have with group therapy? What type of extracurricular activities will they have? Uh, what kind of family support do you have? You know, will I will I be uh, briefed by the social worker? You know, on a weekly basis as to what's going on. Uh, when I was at Menninger, um, each one of our uh, uh, patients had a psychiatrist assigned to them, had a social worker assigned to them, had a psychologist assigned to them, and if they had an addiction, an addictions counselor was assigned to them. So you want to know what professionals are going to be treating your child, how often are they going to be meeting with them, and how often as a parent are you going to be updated on the progress that your child is is gaining through the program. That's awesome. That's great information. And I like how you brought all the different um, types of treatment in for the mental health, for the addiction, also for a lot of kids, you know, you have a doctor monitoring. I know at our, so at our clinic, we have psychiatrists, psychologists, addiction counselors, doctors, nurses, like it's, yeah, it's all bit. those sorts of things, right? And, and it's, it's very important, you know, to have that um, well-rounded care like that. that. That is super important. Finally, I wanted to ask you just about early intervention and the importance of that from just the addiction perspective, because most kids aren't going to develop necessarily a full-blown substance use disorder. As they continue to use, the problem can get worse and worse with regards to tolerance and, yeah. and to where it's, it's much, much harder to quit. And a lot of people, don't know that. They don't understand how addiction works until maybe it's a little too late. And now all of a sudden my kid's got a full-blown addiction and needs to be in detox, stuff like that. So there's kind of a line where we, we sort of, we're using the substance, right? And then we turn this corner where now the substance has got us, which is why I think that early intervention is huge. You're absolutely right. And that's, and that's the danger associated with any, any teenager who's experimenting with the substance that mm-hmm. that it it gets out of control uh and then uh it, it it gradually builds and the child is using more and more of the substance more often mm-hmm. we classify these substance use now as a substance use disorder which is on a continuum of mild to moderate to severe 
most yeah. teenagers are more likely going to be in the in the mild to moderate category. I have seen some that are in the severe category. But as your use continues and you begin to develop, as, as you noted, a tolerance, which means I need more of the drug to get the feeling I want. Uh, you know, you might start with maybe smoking marijuana once every few days, and then it goes to once a day, then it goes to multiple times a day. Our bodies adjust to the substance, uh, which is what we call tolerance. And typically, as a person moves to mild to moderate to severe or becomes addicted, so to speak, mm -hmm. that tolerance level dramatically increases, which simply means the person needs more of the substance to get the feeling that they want. You know, one drink doesn't do it anymore. Now I need two, then I need five. You know, one hit of marijuana doesn't do it anymore, doesn't give me the feeling I want. So now I need two or three hits and then I need it every day. Then I need it multiple times a day. Well, those are examples of a tolerance increase, which is typical as a person, you know, gets more and more into to the substance. The other thing we notice is that the consequences become more catastrophic. Uh, yeah. You know, as a person gets further and further into addiction, the 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 uh, the consequences become catastrophic. There's two major differences, in my opinion, between an adult addiction and adolescent addiction. The first is in brain development. The adult mm -hmm. brain is fully developed around age 24, 25. The adolescent brain is in the process of developing. So the first big difference between adult addiction and adolescence is brain development. The second area is in consequences. Unfortunately, adults who are addicted to a substance have faced many times catastrophic consequences. These are not small consequences. These are catastrophic consequences. They might have lost a job. They might have lost a marriage. They might have been incarcerated. These are major consequences. Adolescents who are using substances, they haven't faced catastrophic consequences very rarely. Their biggest consequence is their family yelling at them or their parents grounding them. So those are two differences between adults and adolescents. But your point is a good one. Um, the earlier we recognize the warning signs, the earlier we intervene, and the earlier we get treatment if it's needed, the more likely we are to have a positive outcome. And awesome. the less likely it is to carry into adulthood. Right. Yeah. Because once we develop that tolerance, then, then our brain really does begin to change, yeah. you know, um, and then, you know, your brain stops producing the chemicals that it was producing, yeah. right? It's like, why produce dopamine or serotonin? You're already giving me all that, right? And so then that's with, with the withdrawal, that's why they call it detox. And a lot of people don't realize that either. You know, we used to have to give my brother alcohol so he wouldn't have grand mal seizures. Right. Why would you give an alcoholic alcohol so they don't die, you know? And so those are those are scary things that begin to develop and happen. And the first time I saw him have a seizure, I didn't know what was happening. I had no idea. Yeah. No one told me, oh, that's detox. You know, the paramedics came. They were very, they weren't too friendly. It was like, oh, another one of these. And whole time I didn't know what was happening. Right. So I feel like there's there's um like an education piece too that's super important about, like you said, the brain and yeah. withdrawal and tolerance. Because a lot of 
parents don't even know. They're like, what? Detox? What's that? Right. You know? Right. Yeah. And, and, and the more as parents, we can become knowledgeable about this issue, um, the, the less fearful it becomes for us and the better yeah. prepared we are to deal with it if we have to. We hope that we don't have to, but if we if we feel prepared, then we feel as if uh, it's not so scary. And if we have to deal with it, we have a plan. We know what to look for. We know what assessments and tests to get done. We know what the treatment yeah. options are. And, and, and if nothing else, I would hope that it helps parents feel a little less paranoid and more confident about this issue, which can be a scary issue. Yeah. But like you said, the more we know, the less frightening it becomes because yes. it's, you know, knowledge is power. Absolutely. Right, knowledge say, is so. power. The more we know, uh, the better prepared we feel and, yeah. and the less, uh, uh, less scared we feel. Yeah. Well, Richard, it's been a pleasure. Um, thanks for coming on and providing your insight. Any parting words of wisdom for parents or anyone struggling with substance use, mental health issues, those sorts of things? I, I would say, you know, we know that treatment works. Uh, we know that early intervention and treatment works. Um, we've seen many, many positive outcomes from treatment. So um, I think it's important that parents understand that the earlier they recognize the, the signs, the earlier they get the assessments and if needed the treatment, you can have a positive outcome because we know that treatment works and there are different treatment alternatives out there that, uh, for parents. Everything from um, you know individual treatment, uh, intensive outpatient to residential. So there are many options out there. Awesome. Give us your book where we can get it and your website information one more time as well. Yeah, the, the book is called The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. It's available on Amazon. It's either a Kindle or a paperback. Uh, the book's website is www.helptheaddictedchild.com helptheaddictedchild.com. If you go to that website, I've posted some blog articles. I have one article on uh, tips for parents on how to check in with their child's mental health. It has like 10 simple questions that you can ask your child just to check in on their mental health. Um, there are uh, endorsements and reviews, and there's a link that'll take you directly to Amazon that if you'd like to have a copy of the book, either as a Kindle or a paperback, it'll take you directly to Amazon. Um, I would encourage you to get it as a paperback. Uh, you might want to highlight or underline or write into it, keep it on your bookshelf, uh, and, and hopefully refer to it if you need to for the information, or perhaps loan it out to a friend that might uh, might be curious about learning about this subject as well. Awesome. Great. Richard, thank you so much for being here and chatting today. Thank you, Jody. Appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and also for your thoughtful contributions to the conversation, which I hope our conversation was helpful to all who listen. Thank you so much, friends, for listening to Genuine Life Recovery, playing on your favorite app or on my website at jodystevens.org. It's J-O-D-I-E-S-T-E-V-E-N-S, jodystevens.org. There you can check out my podcast, blog, recovery coaching info, speaking, and more. Check it out.